The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Catherine Pompilia with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for January 30th, 2022. Earlier this week, Islamic State militants attacked a prison in northern Syria. The prison houses approximately 3,000 suspected Islamic State fighters and almost 700 boys under the age of 18. The prison attack was reportedly an attempt by the Islamic State to replenish its ranks with freed prisoners. Despite claims by the Syrian Defense Forces that the forces had regained full control of the prison, Fighting has continued as about 90 Islamic State militants remain in the complex. At least 181 people have been killed since the start of the attack. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from July 2020 in which Jacob Schultz spoke with Bobby Chesney, Vera Miranova, and Leah West to discuss the fate of Islamic State fighters and affiliates detained by the Iraqi government and by autonomous authorities in Syria, and what lessons were drawn from U.S. experiences with post-9-11 detention and trials of suspected terrorists. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 28th, 2020. For a while, there have been large numbers of alleged former Islamic State fighters and their affiliates detained by the Iraqi government and by autonomous authorities in Syria. The fate of these detainees, and the more than 60,000 people affiliated with the men who live in refugee camps in the region, remains a pressing national security threat. It affects countries in the region, as well as the United States and its Western allies. We assembled an all-star panel to talk about the situation. Joining me in the Virtual Jungle studio was Bobby Chesney, Lawfare co-founder and professor of law at the University of Texas School of Law, Vera Miranova, a research fellow at Harvard and, among other things, author of a recent Lawfare post on trials of Islamic State fighters in Iraq, and Leah West, a lecturer at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, and a fellow at the McCain Institute. It's a wide-ranging conversation, and we covered a lot of ground, including how the trials have gone in Iraq and Syria, how the U.S., Canada, and European countries have responded to the situation, and what lessons can be drawn from U.S. experiences with post-9-11 detention and trials of suspected terrorists. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 28th. What to do with detained Islamic State fighters in Iraq and Syria. All right, so Bobby, could you just set the scene for us a little bit? When we talk about ISIS detainees who are in Kurdish custody, in Iraqi custody, what are we talking about? There's a lot of 
issues swirling around, but just explain to us briefly, what do we mean when we say that? And how did, what are the events that sort of led to this point? Sure. So one way to think about this is that some 40,000 people over time, or roughly between 2014 and 2019, uh, from outside of Syria went there to, to join the Islamic State. I mean, it's obviously an extremely rough estimate. And today, with the Islamic State having lost its territorial control, you've got some substantial number of these individuals, uh, some of whom are loosely categorized as Islamic State fighters. That's a phrase often used. Others are perhaps either non-fighters or are often described as family members of the fighters. But you've got all these people who are in detention in various settings. And I think the easiest way to think about this is that uh, you begin with the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, whose ground operators and in the heyday of the, the territorial combat, they were doing the ground fighting, at least as far as the United States and its allies were concerned. And they ended up taking custody of just a vast number of thousands of Islamic State related persons, some of them fighters, some non-fighters like family members, uh, and ended up running some six, seven, depends on how you count them, uh, separate detention facilities, mostly in northern Syria. There's been different accounts over time in public sources as to how many individuals ended up in that sort of custody. And here I'm talking about custody of alleged or suspected fighters. In 2018, there was a New York Times story that talked about a thousand or so people from 48 different countries, you know, a little less than half of them from Syria, the rest uh, from elsewhere. More recent accounts have put the number above the 10,000 threshold uh, with some two or 3,000, maybe 4,000 of those individuals being so-called uh, foreign fighters. It, it's just hard to know, and it's not really important for purposes of this conversation that we know exactly the numbers. The, the important thing is that the SDF was holding some substantial number of Islamic State personnel in detention facilities. And then separately, also, you have these uh, sprawling uh, camp situations with even larger numbers of individuals, uh, sometimes described as family members, though that too gets murky. I'm sure we'll talk about that and unpack it. The SDF's working model was that if you were a uh, captured Islamic State member who was Syrian, they were trying to and did conduct quasi-criminal prosecutions, at least of a sort, uh, but but only for the Syrians. For the non-Syrians, it was more of a holding pattern with, I think it's fair to say, the general policy being a desire to get home countries to take back their people and deal with them themselves, with SDF simply holding them in the meantime. But of course, that doesn't really go anywhere in a great number of these cases. There have been some repatriations, yes, but not a ton of this. There was a suggestion at one point by SDF that maybe there could be an international tribunal, but that idea has gone nowhere. The thing that has been of interest to try to to resolve this logjam in maybe the past year or so is uh, trying to strike a deal to offload a big chunk of these prisoners directly to Iraq because they have done some number of transfers to Iraq. The Iraqis, of course, have their own substantial number of detainees they've held. They run criminal prosecutions and these are harshly criticized in, in many quarters uh, for their uh, relatively weak evidentiary and uh, procedural qualities and the fact that they often are capital proceedings. Adding to the mix, we have the precipitous U.S. withdrawal uh, from physical direct physical support on the ground to SDF that famously occurred and then was followed by the arrival of Turkish military forces. Uh, the combination of 
both the Assad regime's advances that our withdrawal made possible and the Turkish advances that our withdrawal made possible put the SDF in a terrible position. Uh, reports indicate that at least hundreds of Islamic State detainees escaped. And then at one point, the United States had to intervene to secure some of those whom we consider to be the highest value detainees, including uh, the two so-called Beatles. I don't love that label for these guys, but the two former British citizens who were among a group who were uh, notorious for their involvement with some of the most odious things like the, uh, the, the abuse, captivity, and ultimate murder of, of Kayla Mueller, among others. Um, as a result of that intervention, some indeterminate number of people are apparently in U.S. military custody in northern Iraq for quite some time now. And it's not exactly clear what legal framework we are, we as the U.S. government would consider applicable in those cases. My presumption is that it's under color of the law of war. There's talk, at least in some of those cases, particularly the Beatles case, that the end game is to bring them to the United States. We'll talk later about why that's proven to be much harder than we had hoped it would be. So that's a really helpful overview. And we'll get back to all these things piece by piece. But first, um, Vera, I'm sort of interested in getting a sense of the demographic breakdown of these people. So both in Iraq and in SDF custody, what's the sort of proportion of people who are either Syrian or Iraqi versus people who come from either Europe or, or other parts around the world? In Syria, I would say in camps in northern Syria, there's around 70,000 people, and out of them, something roughly like 20,000 are foreign. So majority are locals. The, in Iraq, this proportion is even bigger, but no one quite knows uh, how many there are because approximately, according to quantitative judges, approximately 30% of prisons are secret prisons. And they could also have foreigners in them. So, but even if we're talking about official prisons, I would say 90% are local. And so, Bobby, you, you mentioned some Americans involved. Give us a sense of how many, I know it's hard to say for sure, but do we have a rough idea of how many American detainees are, are involved here? I can't give you anything like reliable numbers, but maybe I could talk about it most usefully this way. Um, we certainly know that a lot of Americans over the years did journey to Syria to join the Islamic State. We know that in various ways, some of them have come back. Some of them came back on their own. Some of them got captured or otherwise ended up in U.S. custody. The, the general model, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to how we have handled the American citizens uh, who have been caught up in all of this or have gotten themselves caught up in all of this. Uh, some certainly have been prosecuted. So the basic idea is to use a material support to the Islamic State or material support to terrorism prosecution model. There have been some people who've gotten weighty sentences, 20-year sentences for, for going and joining the Islamic State. Uh, there's a larger number who have been caught within the United States by the FBI before they were able to actually get out to go do that. So we want to separate that set of cases, but note that they're related. And then there have been these small number of instances where for whatever reason, it was a little bit more complicated than just bringing them back to the United States for trial. There, there's an indeterminate number of American citizens who may have been in the various SDF detention facilities. We know there's, there's a very public story about one particular detainee who ended up in SDF custody, who then got turned over to U.S. military custody, and that precipitated 
a uh, really protracted, complex bit of litigation that ultimately was, well, it was complicated because the person had both U.S. and Saudi, I think it was Saudi, citizenship. And there was a question about whether they would ever come back to the United States at all. And in the end, the person was, uh, there was, there was an agreement after the litigation to send the person to Bahrain. It is not clear to me whether at this time we've got similar U.S. citizens who are languishing in military custody while we figure out what we're doing with them. Um, my impression is that might not be the case and that it could be at the current time that anyone who was in that position has has either come back and faced prosecution or uh, or perhaps isn't in U.S. custody at this time. Right. So in addition to the Americans, there's a good collection of Europeans involved, but then we're not not the only ones in North America with people who departed to to go to join the Islamic State. So Leah, could you talk a little bit about the Canadians involved here? Do we have a sense of how many are involved and and sort of what's their experience been like? Yeah. So actually per capita, um, Canada had a higher uh, rate of foreign fighters and and supporters uh, travel overseas to join the Islamic State or join you know, affiliates before they were kind of subsumed by the Islamic State. So we don't have any firm numbers that are publicly reported. The last terrorism threat assessment from the Public Safety Canada said that there'd been 190 um, Canadians who had traveled overseas to support terrorism, but that didn't just include Syria and Iraq. It also include, included those who had traveled abroad to support other groups like Al-Shabaab in other regions of the world. And of those 190, we know that 60 have actually already returned to Canada. But oddly enough, uh, of the 60 known to have returned, we've actually only prosecuted uh, five or six individuals. And two of those charges have come in the last year, one of them coming actually just this week for someone who traveled abroad in 2013, 2014. Uh, A mix of both men and women who um, traveled abroad Currently, there are, it depends on who you ask, um, the numbers that people I've done research with say about closer to 40 individuals abroad. I'm aware of four men who are being detained and approximately 25 um, children and then about 15 women. But those numbers, again, are are rough ballparks. I traveled to Syria um, last year and actually met with two men, one who claimed to be a Canadian citizen who I don't believe to be Canadian, um, and another Canadian who were in prison and then also went to the camps and met with um, Canadian women living in the camps. So of those who are abroad, Canada hasn't made any efforts to repatriate anyone. And there's been very little in the way of actual prosecutions here in Canada, despite some pretty well-known instances of returnees. If anybody listened to the New York Times podcast that the caliphate, um, it uh, featured a Canadian man who claimed to have been quite involved with killings on behalf of ISIS, and that individual has never faced charges. All right. So Vera, you have lots of experience sort of talking with people who are detained in these camps and, and people all over the region. Give us a sense of what the conditions are like. First, in the SDF authority detention facilities, and then in the camps where women and children tend to be, and then finally in the Iraqi prison settings. We'll get to the the trials later, but just a sense of what it's like to be a detainee in one of these places. 
Conditions in camps in northern Syria are are okay if we're talking about uh, camps, right? They're not better or worse than any other refugee camps. Yeah, it's hot right now, but, you know, it's hot everywhere. The conditions in in prison are, uh, in SDF custody, are also, I mean, of course, it's not Europe, right? But for Middle East, it's really okay. Bigger issue are conditions in Iraq. And uh, again, there is much less access to prisons in Iraq. There is no access to prisons in Iraq. So that's why basically there's a lot of things happening without people knowing that. And they have a more freedom to do that. Um, as I already mentioned, there are a big problem with secret prisons. But also camps are uh, in a worse condition for ISIS local family members because there is less media interest in them and prisons are much worse than ones in SDF in northern Syria and there is a lot of torture there is overcrowdedness there are reports of um, intentionally withholding medical treatment and so on can I just jump in on that and say that even within the SDF camp uh, the the largest one Al Hol there is a difference in terms of um, connect, kind of the internal pressures between the local sections of the camp made up of mostly Syrians and Iraqis and then the foreigner section, because there is a separate section for foreigners. And within that section, there are a lot of um, women who still maintain allegiance to ISIS and still enforce the rules upon which they were living under the caliphate um, on the women and children in the foreigner section. And so that has led to women killing other women or threatening to kill other women. There's been bodies found. And when I was there in the in October, there was actually a riot. And in order to quell the riot, SDF or the local Aish were actually, you know, firing into the camps as a way of controlling the situation, which when you think about the number of children living in those camps was really shocking and terrifying. So while Yes, they are refugee camps and, and the conditions and the tenting and the nutrition, everything. You have to add on top of that everything that's been locked down because of COVID and the lack of now NGO access um, and additional medical aid. But there still is this element of ISIS within within the camps um, enforcing their their social norms on on the people living within them. Right. And so, so Vera, you had a lawfare post go up um, that I would encourage folks to read about how Iraqi trials of ISIS fighters have gone. And the answer is quickly and not all that well. So talk a little bit about how, how things have gone on the Iraqi justice front and how, what's the perception among sort of stakeholders, either fighters or, or those affected about how those trials have, have, have been? Uh, trials in Iraq are very far from what we would consider justice. So there is no actual investigation. There is um, a lot of torture. So there were conf- there are confessions under torture. I interviewed a lot of people from former inmates who know exactly what's going on behind bars there. And uh, also arrests are not for actual participation in ISIS but for personal settling scores. So if I want to punish a neighbor, I'm going to call and say he's ISIS, get two witnesses, and he's gone, right? Because they have death sentence. So stakes are very high. 
and right now everyone is uh, all major players are fine with that so for example Iraqi government is kind of fine because they're claiming to fight terrorism very effectively because they just kill everyone um, international authorities are also fine with that because they're even bringing their own foreign fighters from let's say Syria to Iraq to get to get death sentence and nicely disappear forever but the problem is, I, I personally attended uh, all trials of those French, uh, I think there were 14 French guys who were brought in from Syria to be prosecuted in Iraq. And there was absolutely no evidences about their participation in Iraq. I, I mean, of course, they are, it's obvious that they are ISIS, right? But there was no evidences of that either just even shown you know there's not even they were not even trying to pretend that it's a fair trial of by any stretch of imagination so the only only people who are actually concerned about what's going on are Sunni population of Iraq and ISIS affiliates and uh, you know who cares about ISIS affiliates but in that sense but we need to make to understand that it's a very big part of the country and because ISIS was a government there for four years everyone is kind of ISIS affiliate uh, everyone could be accused of helping ISIS in one way or another so it really is a big problem for security and sustainability of Iraq as a country because there is absolutely no trust of Arab Sunni population to the government or justice system of Baghdad like none, because they could be randomly arrested, being accused of being ISIS, and then disappear in secret prisons that get get death sentence. So it really undermines the, the legitimacy of the country. And how many people you mentioned that you know ISIS was a government in Iraq? So by design, there's sort of a lot of people that could be, in one way or another, lumped in with prosecutions. Do prosecutions tend to be limited? to people who had an active role in combat, only to men? Or, or what's the sort of scope of these things? It's not, it seems like it's not uh, limited at all. So males, everything, you're getting prosecuted for, um, okay, forget about males, right? Kids, I have a kid who was prosecuted because he was seen by the neighbor washing uh, a car of ISIS intelligence. Well, his father used to work in for ISIS intelligence, so the kid was washing a car, right? It happens. and But he was prosecuting for material support to ISIS. He's a kid. He's, I think he's like 13. Then um, males, like everyone who could be accused, absolutely every Sunni male who was under ISIS during ISIS could be accused of, you know, participation in ISIS. Females, it's even, woman is very complicated issue because... Uh, Baghdad wants to prosecute wives of ISIS for material support to ISIS, right? But then it would actually mean that we not only were putting all Sunni males in prison, which we are doing now, but also all females. So we could basically just close this region and call it a, a, a prison. And they do prosecute. Then there was, uh, for, for a woman, there was famous cases that they prosecuted uh, nurses, while they didn't prosecute doctors, because apparently doctors gave this oath, right, as a doctor, but nurses didn't give that, so they gave an uh, allegiance to Baghdadi, so they were claimed to be part of the group, and they were prosecuted, but doctors were not, and nurses are mostly female, and doctors are male. Then there were some kind of weird pros prostitutes prosecuted for material support to ISIS, because they worked as prostitutes under ISIS. 
So it's like really strange how they're picking uh, whom to prosecute, but all those prosecuted, absolutely everyone gets sentenced. So if you make it to court, you're getting sentenced. Uh, and it's we're talking about uh, for for women, it's twenty years. Mm-hmm. So that's one side of the coin, Leah. You have some experience with the other setup here the the prosecutions by local autonomous authorities in in Syria. How have those trials gone? And, and what's your? It's obviously a very different system than that in in Iraq. And just sort of describe how things go over there. The trials, they're being prosecuted under local law, um, which doesn't include the death penalty, and a maximum sentence is about 20 years. So in speaking with people who are in the region, and also there's been some pretty good reporting from NBR on this, it seems that kind of the most you know, diehard ISIS fighters that are being prosecuted are getting life. Some lesser, uh, lesser fighters are getting about five years, and then those who really serve a supporting role are getting a year or less. So these aren't the same kind of sentences you're seeing in Iraq. And if you talk to the administration, they are trying to take a, I guess you would call it a restorative approach um, rather than a a retributive approach to um, these trials. But again, similar to what Vera was saying, these aren't trials that we would, you know, you're used to seeing in um, Canada or the United States or in Europe. Um, they're very swift. There's, they're allowed to have defense attorneys, but it's not like they most of these individuals being prosecuted do. It's, you know, you walk into a room uh, in front of three individuals who have been appointed as judges. They have the evidence that was collected from you, either in interviews after being arrested or that was seized from you by SDF or U.S. forces at the time of your surrender or capture. It's kind of put to you. You're given an opportunity to to say you're sorry or make a justification for what you've done, and then you're sentenced. So it's not really... Um, you know, what we would think about is full due process. And so there was discussion in the spring about the autonomous administration moving to start prosecuting foreigners. And there were efforts, international efforts, um, to engage with the autonomous administration about what those trials would look like and try to build in some additional, you know, even language uh, safeguards for individuals who are being prosecuted. But um, ultimately, COVID seems to have kind of shut down not only the discussions but the actual prosecutions for the time being but i i it was op, i was optimistic because the administration was looking to um have those kinds of discussions with international lawyers to build some legitimacy into the the trial process hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022 and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. And what are the, the charges that people tend to get in, in Syria? I know Vera mentioned in Iraq, it tends to be sort of material support type charges or affiliation. What's, what's the situation in Syria? So I'm not sure. Like the criminal code, if you want to call it, that I've seen that was translated is very um, truncated. You know, it's about a page and a half long. Um, so really it, it is your support to ISIS or being a fighter. Um, but I haven't seen any actual charge seats, which is another issue is that um, there's not a lot of recording of what people are charged with and what they're ultimately found guilty of. So that's another element of this you know, due process that it's just not there when you have kind of a makeshift court and a non-state entity moving through hundreds of people um, with limited evidence. All right. So Bobby, the U- from a U.S. perspective, looking at what's gone on on in terms of trials and detention, both in Iraq and in Syria. What do you what do you see? What do you see as being the U.S. strategic interest in sort of post-conflict justice in the region? Sure. So there's there are at least two, maybe three ways I think about this uh, in thinking about what's the U.S. interest first. Uh, and these aren't necessarily in order. But first, what will be the the diaspora effect if and when uh, Islamic State fighters uh, spread out from where they are currently centrally held, at least to some extent, and return to their countries of origin, will there be a controlled process that will help with, as much as can be, with de-radicalization, with monitoring, and where appropriate, uh, with prosecution? Or will it be more willy-nilly, who knows what might happen? And people routinely draw parallels to the 1980s with the outflow of uh, veterans from Afghanistan back to their home countries and pointing to the risks and dangers involved there. So that's sort of a familiar lens through which to think about it. But of course, it uh, is not the only lens. There's also the human rights perspective and the interest in ensuring that human rights are protected and preserved and advanced uh, to, to a reasonable degree, at least in these processes. And and one can see how these things are in tension with each other. And this is, again, an old story about these sorts of uh, situations. We saw this in Iraq itself uh, in in the earlier generation of of recent American experience there. And we saw it over time, as was noted, in Afghanistan as well. But there there are also other considerations. And that that goes to the stability of the, the geostrategic situation in Syria, in Iraq, and in neighboring areas. I'm not suggesting that the question of how the foreign fighter and Islamic State detainees, et cetera, gets resolved is a, is a direct and immediate threat to the uh, to the regime in Baghdad or to the to the other neighboring powers. But it's obviously intertwined with that to some extent, and so you've you've got that angle as well. And then a further consideration I'll throw in there is that insofar as a big chunk of the diaspora concern has to do, in particular, with the potential outflow of detainee, former detainees back to Europe when that's a country of origin. It gets tied up in complex ways with U.S. and European relationships. Our, our ability as the United States to pressure, say, Germany or France to, to take, or the U.K., to take more of their own citizens back 
obviously that's limited to begin with. U.S. leverage over our, uh, our friends and allies in Europe hasn't grown in recent years, to put it mildly. So there are those complications as well. Right. So that in mind, I, I think you, you talked a little bit about way earlier on the podcast, the different ways that the U.S. has sort of handled folks involved here. There's been some domestic prosecutions in federal courts, some people who sort of gotten caught up in, in Iraq. What do you see as the best way with all that you just said in mind to sort of further those goals from a direct U.S. action perspective? Is it should we, you know, to the extent possible, repatriate and try folks in U.S. court or is it is it something else? I don't think the United States should act as as the world's uh, uh, default prosecution authority in these cases. If there's let's say there's a, a, a particular individual who's Belgian and I'm just making this up. If the United States could manage the prosecution, then certainly the Belgians could do so as well. Every country should certainly have lead responsibility for dealing with the aftermath of this situation vis-a-vis their own citizens. For better or worse, a number of countries have taken to citizenship stripping for their former citizens who then went to join the Islamic State. And, and in a way, that's rather literally washing their hands of the problem. But that has the effect of pawning that problem off on everyone else. It, it would be a different state of affairs, perhaps, of course, if, if the SDF could be expected in perpetuity to uh, continue to hold what territory they have left and to operate a, a reasonably plausible system of government, including uh, prosecution systems and detention systems over time. But it's perfectly clear that the current situation is at best subject to change. Uh, it may be clear that it won't be able to sustain over time. One thing that's you know that would happen if the SDF further collapsed from where they already have, uh, you can expect uh, at some point them to stop putting their limited resources into these detention operations and or simply ceding them to the Assad regime, which from a, uh, from a variety of perspectives could be extremely problematic for obvious reasons. And so you, you sort of look at this very real prospect that the SDF might at some point say, well, forget it. The rest of the world's not supporting us as much as they used to. I think we're going to stop doing this work on behalf of the rest of the world. This, this facility here, we're just going to open it up. We're going to walk away from it. They're going to go free. Who knows what will happen? This facility over here, well, the Assad regime is going to sweep into that facility in an hour or two. We'll, we'll let them take it from there. None of these are optimal. And so bringing it back to your question, what should the United States be doing? I think it's been the Obama administration and now the Trump administration's policy to try to pressure and in, induce uh, other countries to take back their own citizens. But we've only got so much leverage. And and you realize at a certain point, there's only so much of this problem that we can directly control. Right. So, Leah, Bobby just outlined the position of the U.S. very forward leaning on repatriation to the, you know, relatively speaking. And so on the other hand, there's Canada. Yeah, we're the exact opposite. <laughs> exactly. So I'm curious, talk a little bit how Canada has sort of handled this issue in terms of Canadian citizens and even what the sort of political valence of the issue is. What's the what's the holdup, basically? So it is a really political issue here. And so if you talk to the administration, Canada was one of the first countries on the phone when territory started to fall and you started to see foreign fighters end up in SDF control talking about repatriation. And then the idea that there were returnees who hadn't been prosecuted 
started to become a political issue for a government facing a federal election. And the idea of the Trudeau government being favorable to um, individuals had, who had um, associated with terrorist organizations like ISIS especially um, was not something that I think his campaign could have handled um, in 2019 because there are already a number of terrorism-related issues that were very political for Trudeau in his time, his first four years in government. And one of them goes back you know, to a throwback to Guantanamo, which is Omar Khadr and the government settlement with Omar Khadr for millions of dollars. And then there was another disastrous trip to India where Trudeau's wife was filmed with a man who had been um, convicted of terrorism on behalf of Sikh extremism. So weirdly, there's another situation where Joshua Boyle, who was kidnapped overseas in Afghanistan under kind of questionable turns, returned to Canada, was ultimately prosecuted for various domestic crimes. There's a photo op with him and Justin Trudeau in his in his in his office as prime minister. So there's these series of blunders that, you know, tie the liberal government to, you know, being cozy with terrorists. And so there's definitely no political appetite in 2019 to return and repatriate uh, Canadian citizens. Um, None at all. And the language that's used around this is if they return, we will prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. But at the same time, we're not about to go over there because it's far too dangerous and we don't have the resources and we have no diplomatic presence. So they were kind of trying to, the government was trying to have its cake and eat it too. They continue to maintain that. There's been increased pressure about the repatriation of children, in particular one one orphan. And now it's the logistics issue. Um, We don't have the available resources to go into the region. The region is unstable. It would be unsecure. We don't have consular officials. We're not going. So while there is this, you know, commitment to prosecute if they ever come home, which realistically hasn't been fulfilled because of the 60 people who have returned to Canada, we've only seen a handful of charges. And most of those are for people who tried to get abroad, got picked up in Turkey, they warned us off and we arrested them when they got back and really making no efforts whatsoever to return Canadians who some of them who played a very pivotal role in ISIS, one in particular um, who was an, a big in the ISIS media wing, narrated some of the most kind of iconic ISIS propaganda and been no effort to repatriate them so that they could be prosecuted and really no talk at all about uh, repatriating women and um, prosecuting them for any roles that they may have had in ISIS. And Vera, you mentioned that on the Iraqi end, there's been a couple attempts, particularly by the French, to sort of offload foreign fighters to Iraq. What is, to the extent that you can answer, what do you know about how the Iraqi government sees all this? Is there, are they sort of interested in taking all comers and subjecting, you know, everyone who's who's open to it to the Iraqi justice system? Or is it sort of they're overwhelmed to begin with and, and aren't interested in taking on more people? Well, uh, first of all, those guys don't come for free. There is uh, some bonus included in their transfer to Iraq. So, of course, uh, all politicians who actually know the Sunni community and also judges, they were absolutely against uh, this uh, French affair. 
but they said that they couldn't do anything because it was decided in parliament by by parliament members by government and i'm not sure what actually was paid to them but i think according to some judges there were rumors and speculation that uh one country paid literally paid cash uh in aid and another country I honestly don't even remember which one is which. Uh, another country said that they're going to help Iraq with internet votes in international organizations, like in any um, international affairs. So they're going to support whatever Iraq's, Iraq asks for politically. So, But, of course, everyone is absolutely against uh, against the making Iraq a dump uh, for foreign fighters to be prosecuted and killed. Mm-hmm. And so there's one, you know, we've covered the Europeans, we've covered the US, we've covered the Iraqis. There's one sort of other umbrella, among others, umbrella of people who are interested in this, and that's international legal organizations and human rights groups. Leah, what's the sort of perspective from, on the one hand, like a group like Human Rights Watch, and on the other hand, someone like the UN Special Rapporteur, what's their how do they feel this all should be resolved and what's their take on, on what's gone, gone on so far? Um, both uh, organizations, so the Special Rapporteur from the UN and Human Rights Watch have put out reports in some of them directly targeting Canada to make efforts to repatriate, but just more broadly. And they are generally pretty aligned. They, the Special Rapporteur refers back to Security Council resolutions. So those that were made you know, in 2014 and 2017 to build kind of an international consensus about how to deal with the foreign fighter situation and how to deal with ISIS. And there is no particular terms in those resolutions that talks about repatriation, but there is commitments to prosecute those who commit offenses on behalf of ISIS and to prevent individuals from traveling abroad to engage in activity on behalf of ISIS. So the special rapporteur says that to positively implement the requirements under these resolutions realistically requires repatriation and prosecution. Um, There's also allusions in the special rapporteur's um, statements, and you'll see it in Human Rights Watch's reports as well, about a positive obligation to intervene in favor of a state's nationals when there is reasonable belief that they are going to face flagrant um, violations of international human rights law if uh, denial of justice, imposition of the death penalty, torture, cruel and inhuman um, treatment. However, both the special rapporteur and some of the other NGO reporting is a a bit weak in terms of linking directly to international law um, when they make those claims. And so countries like Canada have been very forceful in saying that they don't actually have any legal obligations to repatriate individuals who are abroad. I'll just note something that Bobby had said about uh, citizen stripping, because I wanted to bring that back up, is that Canada used to actually have a citizenship stripping law and the Trudeau government alleviated that or removed that because it was would likely face a charter challenge here in Canada. But Canada um, did get kind of left holding the bag with Jihadi Jack, who is a UK citizen, um, who had his citizenship stripped by the UK government. And now he's fallen to Canada to repatriate. And um, in that case, you know, you were able to strip him of his citizenship because he was left with another viable citizenship option 
But there are states, Australia, for example, and the UK, um, who have taken to stripping people of their citizenship because they have the option of getting citizenship abroad. And that really is in violation of international legal norms and international law with respect to statelessness. So there's a lot of different international law issues at play, but in terms of actually being able to pin you know, a requirement to repatriate on any specific treaty or any specific customary law requirement, it's hard to do. And so human rights organizations are trying to compel repatriation on the basis of these positive obligations to prevent their citizens from facing torture and cruel treatment which I think is a way we would like to see the law evolve, but I'm not sure that it is where it is at this time. And so, Bobby, there's a lot of parallels here, especially on the foreign fighters side, to the the detention questions that sort of animated the debate around Guantanamo Bay. What do you feel like the U.S. has learned from the the experience after 9-11? And so, for example, right now, there was reporting yesterday about sort of evidence about the, the so-called Beatles, who are two British ISIS members accused of participating in the killing of, of many folks, including the American Kayla Muller. So let's say this was 2006. How would we have handled the Beatles back then? And what do you feel like we sort of learned that's changed the approach since then? That's a great question. Certainly one thing that collectively we seem to have internalized in sort of a diffused way over the past decade and a half or more is that it's extremely costly in in a variety of complex ways to take direct responsibility for detention operations under color of the law of armed conflict. We still have the legacy detainees at Gitmo, but not many of them left. Uh, We have gotten out of the business, which we used to be in at considerable scale at times and places in Iraq and Afghanistan. Guantanamo was always small compared to those places. And as part of that, we never got back into the business at scale vis-a-vis Syria, even though at this very moment, we do in fact seem to have a very small detention operation underway in what must be in northern, the Kurdish region of northern Iraq. As I mentioned earlier, we, we do have custody, it seems, of at least a small number of people, including the two so-called Beatles. So what's that all about? We, well, there's a, there's a host of problems. One is where can the United States run a large scale overt detention facility uh, outside the United States? Very few uh, locations are going to be amenable to that. What about Guantanamo? Guantanamo, of course, is is like the ultimate lightning rod for criticism and debate and has, thanks to Congress, uh, has this Roach Motel quality to it, where once you bring a detainee there, you can't actually easily decide to remove them. So even if you wanted to bring new people to Guantanamo, that would be exceedingly difficult. Legally speaking, it's worth emphasizing that the U.S. government's position under Obama and Trump both has been that the Islamic State is certainly within the scope of the 2001 AUMF, and by extension, that the detention authorities associated with the the armed conflict model that originates with Al-Qaeda would apply to them. And so in theory, I actually think it's probably likely that if they were to decide to bring the Beatles from military detention to Guantanamo, there, there would clearly be habeas litigation. I think the government would almost certainly prevail in that case, but they can't know for sure. And again, there's all these other frictions politically, diplomatically, et cetera 
come with that. They've shown zero appetite for actually doing it. And the plan all along has been vis-a-vis those two to seek uh, prosecution in a civilian ordinary federal court proceeding. The obstacle has been that it, at least it appears to be the case that the strongest inculpatory evidence showing um, not it, it's easy to show that those guys were Islamic State members. That's not hard at all. They, they keep giving these interviews like they did the other day with NBC where they keep talking about what they did. So that's it's a foregone conclusion that you could prosecute and convict them based on basically providing themselves as members subject to the direction and control of the Islamic State. And you can get 20 years or depending on how many convictions there were on various charges, you could stack them together and get a long sentence. But the goal in that case, I, it seems to me, is to uh, seek the death penalty for their involvement in the horrific abuses and murders uh, of various individuals, including Kayla Mueller. And I think if you look at the pattern of what's going on here, the U.S. government's been holding off, hoping to get the evidence that British authorities have. And then they discovered through a, a British Supreme Court ruling not long ago that, in fact, unless the United States takes the death penalty off the table in that case, the evidence cannot be shared. So there's a bit of a standoff now. And I think it's it's a question of determining whether there's going to be any other way to make a case for capital punishment. Uh, or must the United States decide to settle for something in the nature of a long, maybe a life sentence, but not a capital punishment case? And I, I think a lot of this reflects, you know, you don't see any talk about trying to go through the military commissions because that's been such a train wreck over time. You don't see any talk about trying to just send them to Guantanamo. That that shows you just how strong the lessons learned about all the headaches from prior experience uh, must be. All right. So we, we need to wrap up in a second. In terms of ways forward. It seems the sense from from a lot of you is that on the foreign fighters end, repatriation to the extent possible is sort of a way to alleviate at least some of the, the problems. So on the Iraqi front, Vera, what do you, you know, you wrote about this a bit in your piece for Lawfare. What do you see as the ways to sort of stabilize this huge prison population and to, to make justice in Iraq work a bit better? So first thing, I think it's an um, actual job of law enforcement uh, to take, con- Iraq should take control of the law enforcement and not have, uh, not give authority to red militias to arrest people on uh, uh, terrorism charges. And then, of course, the prosecution should be based on, on, on something more legitimate than torture confessions. But also the crucial issue, which is going to be technically harder to solve, is to get rid of death penalty. Because right now, for example, there is a very big problem with with insurgency. You know, it, it's kind of not uh, smart to assume that we could just kill all ISIS and they would be gone. Of course, there are a lot of ISIS around. But the problem is that even those who want to demobilize and reintegrate in the society couldn't do that. Because even if you just you know, surrender to Iraqi authorities saying, you know, I was ISIS, I'm done fighting, thank you. You're going to get a death penalty. So there is absolutely no point in doing so. So so you're better continue fighting as an insurgency. So this, this law, the death penalty and very long sentences, it's not like in, in Syria where you could get one, three, five years. In Iraq, it's either a death sentence or 25 years in prison. There is absolutely no way for anyone to demobilize under those conditions willingly. 
Well, I think that is all the time we have today. Thank you all for doing this. I very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week was Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo, and the podcast is produced, as always, by Jen Patyahau. Your music is performed by Sophia Yan. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and think about sharing us on Twitter, on Facebook, or wherever you participate in social media. If you find yourself with a free minute and some time and interest in online shopping, check out thelawfarestore.com for cool new socks, t-shirts, notebooks, whiskey glasses, and lots of other things. And as always, thanks so much for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.